0: Hello and welcome back to the Art of Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by one of this country's finest football journalists, Mr. Ollie Kay.
1: Thank you. I, I was, uh, I was um, uh, rather flattered by your your, your introduction there. So I, I was I was hoping I was hoping you'd go on and lay 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 on even more flattery, but um, none of it true. But um, but thank you.
0: So, Ollie, you are. One of the senior football writers at the Athletic, which has become sort of the gospel of this podcast. Um, we've had a lot mm-hmm. of your colleagues on. Um, talk to me a bit about the the job you do there and the kind of stuff you're writing.
1: Well, um, I, I'll assume that um, that your listeners will know something about the Athletic, but 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 um, but yeah, effectively we, we have. Um, I think it's about thirty or twenty. 8, 29, 30 um, clubs which we cover on a, uh, a daily basis with with regular correspondence. Um, sort of, you know, James Pierce doing Liverpool, Phil Hay doing Leeds, and uh, James McNicholas Nick- doing Arsenal, etc. And it's it, it's you know we've got all, all these guys doing brilliant, brilliant work, going very much in depth. And then we have a number of sort of specialist, not specialist, non-specialist, generalist. Um, Reporters like myself and Danny Taylor, George Colkin, um, Simon Hughes, uh, Adam Crafton, etc., who have a sort of wider um, brief, where where we just sort of go off Stuart James and other, um, and, and and do different pieces, and you know we will perhaps look at those clubs from a, a you know a more detached, more distant, maybe more critical um, perspective. We'll we'll look at you know. Other issues within the game, and and um, yeah, just just sort of write uh, in that way. So it's more of a sort of overview kind of correspondent role, and trying to get interviews and trying to do features, and and um, yeah. So, so those guys that I mentioned, you know, the club correspondents will have a sort of um, sort of very narrow and deep perspective on those clubs, and 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 then there are others of us who sort of um, will walt waltz along. Um, you know, every now and then, and and, and uh, stroke our chins and, and and give probably a more vague overview <laughs> in some ways. But uh, yeah, it's you know we we probably have to be sort of um, uh, jacks of all clubs and masters of none.
0: And it's something I was reading back through some of the the work you'd published uh, the other day, just as a sort of precursor to doing this. And I came across the first thing you uh, published there about why you joined and you'd said about how it was always something you wanted to do was writing about football. Um, So I wanted to take you back to sort of when you first started as a journalist, um, Mm -hmm. how you got into it, because if you knew you always wanted to do it, you must've had some sort of, you know, beeline straight to where you wanted to go.
1: Well, um, yes and no in that, in that I'd say when, I mean, I, you know, we back to the mid nineties now as, as, terrifying as that sounds and um, there was basically sort of no I mean there, you didn't have sports journalism courses and things like that like there are now and there, there are you know there's been a huge sort of proliferation of of journalism courses over the last probably 10 years in particular um in those days it was I mean when it when I got to the stage where I was sort of thinking well what do I want to do to you what know, I think I want to write about football because I don't want to do a real job um I basically you know, made a few inquiries about how you become a journalist and they you know the, what came back was well you've, you you've, you've done a degree in, in something else you need to you know sort of do a postgraduate degree in in journalism of which you know for which there were probably I think three courses in whole country and um, and then you would having done that you would try and get a job on a local paper you would probably do a couple of years of news reporting and then you would probably you know go onto the sports desk of a local paper and then sort of um go up that way it was you know there weren't websites there weren't um you know there weren't really any different routes so so, i mean i guess that you know there were two routes probably there was the the sort of straight from school route and then there was the sort of university um postgrad course route and, and i did the the postgrad course at Cardiff, which was um, was and I presume still is a brilliant course. Um, and from there I got to, um, you know, I, I got a job at the um, Nottingham Evening Post. Um, and to my absolute relief, I got, um, I was able to do, go straight on to sport because I, I did um, some work experience there in the Christmas holidays, uh, really enjoyed it. And they offered me a, a job there and then. Um, which basically I, you know i sort of accepted to, to to start as soon as the course finished and that's i mean I, I am under no illusions about how lucky i was to be able to do that because you know you don't hear really of of newspapers you know local particularly local newspapers just be able to sort of offer jobs sort of on the spot because because they liked somebody who came in on work experience I mean that that happened then but you know i think the way, you know, the sales of newspapers have gone, the budgets, the finances involved um, have gone, it's become really, really, really difficult to to get that first job in, in journalism. Um, and so now you have, I mean, it's, it's very different for, 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 you know, people who are younger and doing courses now. I mean, there are so many courses and there's so much brilliant sort of... Um, you know, theoretical and practical, you know, things that you can learn in, on a course, but um, you need um, you need somewhere to go and, <laughs> and 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 make a living from it, and that's that's become the more difficult thing. And I I, I would you know I've, I've likened it before to the sort of um, the Premier League academy system, where you've got this sort of the the facilities, the the, the education of of you know. Student journalists and student student journalists like Premier League footballers is is probably better than ever, but is there that pathways there that sort of opportunities at the end of it where you can go and um, and and you know climb the ladder and make a living from it? I think it's I think it's um, much more difficult for for people now because there's there's so much competition and um, probably fewer and fewer sort of places up for
0: grabs. And it's something that I think, speaking to Adam Hurry in his episode, we were talking about his sort of his niche being the the cliches and all of the stuff that he talks about mm-hmm. that that side and the website that he'd set up and that being his pathway. And so it's interesting hearing yeah, yeah. the other side of it and having to you know doing the work experience and then being offered the job in a local newspaper because it's something that some people think they can skip that step or that you know it's not somewhere where you learn the sort of principal things of journalism is in the local newspapers um so it's interesting hearing the sports side of that as well from that you went on to the times uh where you were there for quite a long time you were first the northern football correspondent and then chief football writer is that correct
1: yeah it, it was it was there's was a there's a step that I, I think is probably the most important step that i took really which was um when i was at the Nottingham Movie Post and i was reporting on Knotts County there and I was really enjoying it and I only really just started that job um, in my second year at the Notts Moving Post and then I was offered a job by an agency called Wardle's agency in Manchester well, they, they had sort of um, offices all over the north I was offered a job in Manchester and that was basically going there to uh, you know to become a sort of an agency reporter you know reporting on you know the Northwest Club's the Yorkshire clubs etc and doing you know although I I wasn't going to be working for a newspaper I was going to be writing for the National so I was immediately went there and was doing sort of reports for the Mirror, reports for the Guardian um, a lot of the time Um, you know the Mail Express etc it was it was Going from doing that job on a on a on a paper to basically sort of writing for all the papers, um, and doing stuff you know for a national audience and doing stuff on you know, on on the big Premier League clubs. And I was sort of went from Notts County one week to you know a Man United press conference the next Friday, and it was like oh my god, you know Alex Ferguson growling at the front of the room and looking at this sort of upstart, wondering who the hell he is, um, wondering but not caring. Um, so that was you know a massively steep learning curve and and um you know going down to manchester united's training ground and man city's training ground sort of man city's training ground almost every day of the week really because that was you know you had that access there then they were still a you know um well championship club as it is is now they only just come up from what is now league one um although the barriers were up a bit higher at um manchester united you could just sort of wander in Man City and just talk to whoever you liked. Um, and it was, I mean, that was just a really amazing um, learning curve as well. And it was from that that, that you know, they, uh, you know, basically the Times had an emergency, staff emergency where they didn't have anyone at the North, in the Northwest as the, as the season was about to start. And they just basically sort of hatched a deal with with Wardle's agency um, for one of our junior reporters to basically sort of be there um sort of stopgap in in the northwest and basically that's that's how i got in at the times and um i never really looked back in terms of the times when I, mean, I, I you know did that job as a as an agency reporter for two years um doing all the other stuff as well um and then became um joined the, the Times staff full-time in 2002 and was there until um 2019 um so yeah um in terms of Agency and stuff. I, I was I was at the Times for nineteen years, and uh, yeah, that was an amazing experience, an amazing privilege. Because you know, I, I sort of always looked at the Times as you know the kind of paper that, and I loved their sports coverage. And, and I always thought, well, you know, one day I'll, I'll, you know, as I set off on my road in, in journalism, you know, one day I hope to you know write for a, a paper like that. And through this sort of you know perfect storm of, of of circumstances and you know one thing falling into place after another um you know i was the right man in the right or right 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 boy in the right place at the right time really um in um at the age of 25 and was sort of massively out of my depth i would say and wet behind the ears and learning on the job but um would not have changed it for the world really
0: and the job at the the times when you end up as chief footballer, it ended up taking you to World Cups, the Euros, mm-hmm. biggest games. What were some of the the highlights of that time um, doing that job?
1: Well, if, if I go, I mean, it was, I mean, if, if I look back to the first few years, it was just like this sort of massive, um, you know, it was, as I say, you know, learning curve, it, but it was, I was just going, I mean, I would never really traveled anywhere as a journalist. I think what is it? The Not Evening Post. I traveled to Dublin for a not too far as preseason tour and went to a match at um uh God, who was it? Was it um St Patrick's Athletic or so, or somewhere like that? I should know, but um, Bray, Bray Wanderers, there you go. Um and um you know that was as far as I'd ever gone and and then suddenly i joined the times and I was told sort of on my first day, oh look, we've got you down to cover Wales. And and so um, we're just looking at their fixture. They're away to Belarus in, in a fortnight. First thing you need to do is go go and get uh, a visa. So I was, I was you know, I, I, I always felt like I, you know, growing up, I was somebody who always knew where everywhere in Europe was because of, because of basically sort of being such a nerd and, Focusing on you know who teams were playing in the UEFA Cup and European Cup, Winners' Cup, etc., and then you know Belarus, Minsk. I I have no idea where where these places are. So I, you know, basically had to go to Belarus, had to go to Armenia, had to go to you know Ukraine and Poland. You know, Wales had this sort of incredibly um, uh, sort of far flung um, group qualifying group for 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 that. uh, World Cup and for the next European Championship and go to places like Azerbaijan and and Kazakhstan etc. I mean it, so that, those trips were always real eye openers and then I was also going to you know the, suddenly going doing Liverpool in, in Europe and going to you know Roma away in the, in the in the UEFA Cup Barcelona away Porto away ending that season doing the UEFA Cup final in Dortmund Liverpool playing Alaves and that was just this absolutely mad game that ended at 5-4 five, five, and it was probably you know for a you know I'm still only 25 doing doing a match report for that game and it was just like you know in the press box my head frying because you know every time I went to write an intro it was you know Alaves scored again and the Liverpool scored again it was just a crazy game and those, those games are you know a learning curve in a completely different way and just you know going from you know, being someone on the outside looking in as a as a journalist, um, to being sort of suddenly, you know, on, on the on that UEFA Cup run and on the you know covering Liverpool, covering football in Europe, you know, I was going on the, on the on the plane with the with the team, and and that was just you know I was, I was very starstruck in in that way. I and mean, I, I, um, and going to you know huge games at Old Trafford, that brilliant Man United team, and you know, Man City promoted, I think that first season were they, or no? They they, they just got promoted. I was I was, um, but you know, Man City was was great fun at that time. Everton were going through a real kind of crisis, but you know, Bolton were promoted the next season. Blackburn were promoted the next season. It was just it was just you know one thing after another. It was, it was just brilliant storylines, and you know, going to Alex Ferguson's press conferences was a massive um, eye opener and. You know, privilege. As as you know, uh, th- there are people who enter journalism now, and you know they'll they'll go to a press conference, and, and you know, but they won't have the sort of up front front row seat access. You know, and when I say front row, I mean just a small desk in between you and Ferguson. and You could almost sort of feel his hot breath on your face as he sort of um, unleashed what you was know, known as the hairdryer treatment. He was screaming in journalists. <laughs> faces which you did a lot of the time cameras weren't rolling in those days so it was just a really it was just a far more intimate uh involved um a much closer connection than I think you get as a journalist now covering any of those clubs and it was um yeah it was it was just um yeah just an incredibly steep learning curve but an incredibly sort of yeah in at the deep end experience and I I, I think if you were um looking back you know in terms of you know should i've got that job at you know at, at the age of 25 no i was i was just the right place in the right right place at the right time and and you know they were were in a bit of a desperate um <laughs> desperate uh, predicament because because of a staff issue so, but um no I, as i say i would not have changed it for the world and and thankfully hopefully eventually i i kind of just about um proved my worth hopefully
0: so it's something quite interesting you're saying about being right per- person in the right place right time all that stuff do you think that the in at the deep end experience of that is sort of what has helped keep you going through that time sort of it taught you all of the valuable lessons in a really short period of time
1: yeah I mean it's it's interesting really because there was a group of us who were kind of I'd say I'd say that that period sort of you know early 2000s late late 90s early 2000s it felt like a lot of the very senior journalists and um who had been sort of part of the furniture for for years and were probably sort of hitting their sort of coming to their retirement um all at the same time really and I, I think a lot of them sort of moved on and or moved and moved on to the Sunday papers and it, it suddenly created a lot of um openings on the um, on the national papers all at once really um so people like Danny Taylor joined the Guardian Don McFifield joined the Guardian uh, George Corkin had, had already joined the times but but was um you know around that time um Mark Ogden at uh, the Telegraph, Ian Ladyman at the Mail, it was, I mean, th- these were just in the, in the Northwest. I mean, I think the same thing was happening in, in London as well with, you know, people like John Cross, um, uh, you know, Matt Law a bit younger, but, you know, over a short space of time, it felt like a lot of us who are probably in our 40s, mid 40s now, um, probably got, you know, the doors opened um, for, for for a lot of us in, in a short space of time, and, and you know Sam Wallace at the Telegraph um, was the other one I was going to mention. He came up to Manchester, and so suddenly, from there being this sort of cast of of you know older journalists covering Manchester United um, in particular, um, there was this sort of very quick turnover, a very short period where you know the reporters were suddenly Neil Custis for the Sun Dave McDonald for the for, for the mirror, Ian Ladyman for the mail, um, Richard Tanner from the Express who's was a bit a bit older. Um, but then you know myself, Danny Taylor, Mark Ogden, Tim Rich, uh, Sam Wallace and it was it was just a very much younger thing and and so whereas it would have been really really daunting, I think going up against you know people like, Peter Fitton and Bob Cass, who knew Alex Ferguson really, you know, r- really well and, and uh, were sort of had those sort of intimate relationships with him. You know, I was sort of competing with people who were nearer my age and, you know, a lot of us uh, in the same position. And I think probably, you know, it was probably a bit of a fairer, <laughs> uh, you know, playing field in that way. Um it's probably not answering your question directly but it was but it meant that you know we were kind of competing with each other and sometimes you know able to help each other out through through you know you know maybe sharing of quotes or sharing pooling of information in some you know in some cases um you know those, those sort of battle lines were never really clear so you know there were always times where you felt you were being shafted and times where you probably breathed a, a, a sigh of relief when when something was shared with you but it was um, but yeah, it was it was the the point really is that is that that for, for that group of journalists in who you know we were in our sort of mid forties at the time. Um, there was that opportunity that perhaps didn't therefore didn't come about for the for the ones who were perhaps ten years younger. So you know, if I'm talking about you know right place at the right time, I think. There aren't as many established journalists who are, I'd say, in the mid thirties now. You know, there are a lot of very good ones, but there, but there probably aren't as many who were able to establish themselves on big national papers in their mid twenties or late twenties or whatever. I, I think that sort of um, that age group that I'm was part of, still am, part, uh, you know, part of that age group. Um, but I, I think things fell into place in a, you know in quite a nice way for us, and and we were then, I mean, I guess then, the, you know, the, the challenge is to make the most, I, I would say, of, of all, all the people I've mentioned, you know, I, I'd say we all have seized that opportunity in um, one way or the other, you know, and, and have, have all done really well. I mean, you know, it's one thing getting that opportunity and being in the right place at the right time, but, you know, you have to work bloody hard to justify that, um, sort of fast track type appointment, and and then make the most of it.
0: And so, when you went from Northern football to being the chief football writer, did you stay in the northwest, or did you move and relocate?
1: It was put to me when I, you know, when I went for an interview for that job that you know you will of course be moving to London, and I was thinking, well, really, you know, what? Why would I move to London? I mean, you know, the. Um, you know, I'll probably offend some people, but I, you know, I, I would say there are some very good <laughs> clubs and teams in 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 London, but and 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 in elsewhere in the south. But I, I would always feel that that you know the heartbeat of English football is is in the north and particularly the northwest, but also the northeast and Yorkshire. So I you know I was I had sort of the Manchester clubs, the Liverpool clubs, um, you know Blackburn, Bolton. Um, Stoke, even um, Leeds, Bradford, Huddersfield, etc. Sheffield clubs, all, you know, all, all on my doorstep. You know, you know, the northeast a bit further away, but you know, close to the Midlands. So I, I just sort of made a strong case, really, that I should um, I should stay in the northwest and and sort of keep keep um, keep where I was. You know, just had a had a our first child as well, so um, you know, we didn't really want to uproot um, and so I, th- I think there was always that view back in the sort of 80s 90s whenever that, that it was a that the sort of chief football writer's job was a London job and I, I think that was you know I think that's a myth really I, I, I don't think you know I think being in London doesn't do you any harm but I think if you've already settled in a in a in a area which is close to other football teams and and um, close to the rail, rail networks, etc., or motorways, then you know. I think you, I think you can do it from um, from there, and, and particularly in a, in, a, in an age where you know now with with technology, as it is you, you really don't need to be in London a lot. I mean, I, I was down to London a lot for England games in particular, and for Champions League games, um, Arsenal, Chelsea, Spurs, but I think as, as time has gone on, I, I mean, I've, I've been in london less and less and less particularly particularly the last <laughs> 10 months or so i mean it's it's um it's um yeah i'd say it's a job which it's important that you um you get out and about and you see people but you don't have to be in in london to do that
0: yeah um there'll be some quite happy uh flatmates of mine that you didn't mention hull when you were talking about uh clubs in the north but uh, i'll <laughs> let you off um the so when you were the chief writer and you did you sort of choose who you were reporting on? Was it sort of one of those delegating it down and then you got, you know, the last draw or were you sort of right? I'll do this and you can go and do that one.
1: It was, um, yeah, I mean, with that sort of chief football writer role, there was always this sort of idea that the chief football writer or chief football correspondent, um, sort of has first pick on the match list. And I, I was always, I mean, I think some people slightly abuse that at times and sort of um, at the expense of, you know, the people who cover the those teams all the time and regularly and who need to be seeing those teams all the time. So when when we had like two passes per game, I would always make sure I was doing sort of the best game of the weekend or the, or what I consider the most interesting game of the weekend or the midweek, whatever. Um, you know, if, if it meant doing a game at the expense of, you know, one of our other reporters who was, you know, you know, I, I made sure I sort of never, never wanted to do Newcastle. Uh, if it meant George Corkin not doing a game or Tony Barrett you know, with Liverpool, you know, if it meant him not doing a game, I think, I think, um, so I it was so I generally did the bigger games. If it was like a big a big game or or a game where I felt like I wanted to do a different kind of piece, you know, I I, I would I would generally focusing on focus on on those games really and, and yeah, I mean having having first pick was was great because it meant that, you know, it meant that um, more often than not if there was a if there was a big you know huge game happening in the Premier League or or the Champions League I was generally there and if it it was you know that sometimes I would want to do games at the bottom of the table or mid table for a a different type of piece or whatever Um, but uh, yeah generally I got first choice and I tried to be sort of respectful of that of my colleagues when um, making my choices I didn't want to do every game if that meant they missed out on games
0: and so did you ever have some weekends maybe where you picked the wrong fixture? Are there any that stand out maybe where sort of you picked one thinking, oh, this is going to, you know, lead to a good piece. And then somewhere else in the country, there was, you know, a 4-4 or something that would have made a, a, an even better piece for that kind of.
1: Yeah, there, there were, there were um, I mean, there were definitely games like like that. I mean, I, I, I got all, all the time because, you know, qu- quite often you'd get sort of two equally weighted Sunday games or or, or whatever. And you'd think, right, well, I'll do that one, um, and quite often, you know, quite often, it, you know, from a practical point of view, it would come down to uh, location and just practicality. So, you know, if if there was a big, a big game in, you know, at Spurs or whatever, Matt Hughes, who was deputy football correspondent, would would do that one with with one of our London colleagues, and I would generally do, you know, the match in the northwest with with one of my, you know, Manchester or Merseyside colleagues. That's generally how it worked. Sometimes we'd do it the other way around and you know I, in terms of big matches where something massive happened that I wasn't at um yeah there, there, there must have been some but I mean I can't I, I clearly don't regret them that much because I, I, I can't think of any I mean it was there was one in um you know it, it's worth a whole sort of question in itself this but the, the the um on 2012 May 2012 the final day of the Premier League season when um, Man City were playing QPR and Sunderland were playing uh, Man United and you know they were both going for the league and, and you kind of go to those games thinking well I hope the story is I hope the story is here and I think with that one even though until the final seconds of the game Man City were going to lose the title I think that was probably because of the way that match had been built up that probably would have been in some ways the, the big story that day um even if man United had won the league, won the league title that, that seems like a mad thing to say if you, if you say you know Man United the bigger club winning the title would have been a you know a lesser story than man City not winning the title but mm. it, it, I think because of the drama that that would have involved and and did involve, um, I think that that man City would have been the right place to be come what may. Um, and yeah that's exactly how it turned out i think we should i i i, you know, I, I don't want to sort of um um choose your questions for you but I, but i but when when um when people ask me you know about about um sort of best games that you know best games that you've covered i mean i i think there are a handful that always come to mind and that man city qpr game is one of them it was just absolutely incredible thing to witness not just the dramatic um climax that everybody knows about but it was this sort of game that the club had been building up to for I mean re- really only building up to for four years but their fans had been through it for you know 44 years since, since they last won the, won, the, won the league and and it was this sort of incredible sense of oh god is today the day um and I'm not I'm not a Man City fan but I've got you know um some very good friends who are Man City fans and and I was sort of feeling it um, from their point of view and um a good friend who who was working for the club at the time as well and it was it was um um I knew how nervous everybody was but but I've never felt the sort of anxiety and uh, just stress that I felt in a football stadium um, in the second half that day and as, as they, they went from 1-0 up to 2-1 down and you know there was just this sort of sense of horror and you felt guilty kind of being there and watching people's body language change and you know I saw you know, a few minutes to go that you know there were people walking out just thinking I can't you know I've waited 44 years. this but i cannot sit through another second of this this is this is hell um and then obviously there was the massive turnaround and and it was just one of the most spectacular things i've i've witnessed and it was you know of all the days that you know as as a football reporter a, a sort of privilege to sit in on somebody else's party i think i think that was a that was that was one of them it was just I've never known euphoria like, like the the final whistle. It wasn't just joy, it was sort of this visceral, euphoric release. And it was just, yeah, it was like nothing I've ever witnessed before or since. And, And, you know, when we're talking about, um, about, you know, football and what it means to people and, and, um, so that i mean that that was the classic illustration of what you know what football means to people and 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 what you know attracts us all to the game i mean it's, it was a spectacular um game you know of football but it was but it's really you know what it means to people and i think when we're talking about people not being in, st- in stadiums now for for well apart from that brief period in in december you know people not being in, in stadiums and fans who have watched games for years and, and and watching games in empty stadiums it's 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 just that that is what I, you know what everybody misses it it's you know everybody misses the idea of being in a stadium and watching a football match but it's it's that atmosphere and it's what it means to people and it feels at the moment like it doesn't sort of mean quite as much because because the stands are empty and those are you know you go to an occasion like that, and it's you know I, I don't think there could be a much better illustration of what football means to people.
0: So you're sat there, you're writing, you're reporting on that game. Surely you're getting swept up into the sort of the emotion of the occasion, but you've still got the work to do. How how do you sort of balance the two? Is it?
1: <laughs> well, you, I mean, I think I think you do, you, know, you do get swept up in in the emotion. You don't want to kind of you want your writing to reflect the occasion and the atmosphere. You don't want it to sort of read like, you know, some kind of something that was what, you know, like you were watching in a uh, laboratory or, or, or whatever, or, you know, you, you want, you want to reflect the atmosphere, the occasion, what it meant, what, how it felt in the ground. And, and that's not an easy thing to do. But I think, I think you kind of, I mean, it's not like, you're suddenly rooting for one team or the other But when you when you're at a match you you obviously want to I mean, you don't want to feel immune to the emotions of the game and and immune to the atmosphere i think i think you've got to write objectively but not dispassionately you know you, you've got to to reflect the The emotions around the game the atmosphere around the game the you know how it felt inside the stadium because you know that's that's what you're you know that's what you're writing about often people have watched the game on tv anyway and they they want to know how it felt inside the stadium and um and, and that kind of thing so you need to be sort of objective and detached in maybe your analysis of 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 the match but but you also need to be you know I, th- I think you need to tell a story of 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 the occasion and sometimes you're telling it more from the emotions of of one team rather than the other and and you know I, th- I think people don't want to write um, people don't want to read a report that look, that's read you know that reads like it was sort of written in a Laboratory by somebody who was completely um, indifferent to the atmosphere or the, indifferent to the you know the the context or the the individual or collective storylines I think mean, that that it's that there are different things people want from from um, you know when, when they're reading about football and I'd like to think of the athletic you know we give people a massive variety and diversity of, of that because we you know, there's some incredibly deep detailed analysis on on different players and different performances etc but we've also got you know someone like George Corkin, who to me is the most brilliant um, sort of almost like a kind of sketch writer about football in in that he will you know write from the perspective of of you know very much about the human emotions around the game or or he's also very good about it, the, the complete lack of human emotions sometimes around a, a match at Newcastle at the moment. Um, it's uh, yeah I, I think you've got to be able to do or provide both both types of writing and and you know I, I would probably say that I would veer more towards the more kind of atmosphere emotional um, sort of storytelling, Type of football writing than than um, than the sort of cold detachment um, style of football writing, but um, I'm nothing like as good at George at it.
0: And were you there for some of England's low points during the sort of international tournaments that came after that? You know, the, the Euros and the World Cups.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of them actually. I mean, if, if you if you think of the. The modern history of the England team, and the, I guess there was that sort of upturn um, when Svenio and Eriksson first arrived. They won five one in Germany, and and had an exciting World Cup in, in in Japan, and then a, you know, uh, and then that sort of. Started to peter out. I, I I came into sort of reporting on England around the time that was sort of petering out um, in a in the build up to the two thousand six World Cup. I wasn't in Baden Baden where, where all the sort of fun and games was with the players' families and, uh, and so on in the in the um, in the World Cup. Um, but I, but I was doing the matches which were largely far less entertaining. Um, and then I was there for the Euro two thousand eight qualifying campaign, which was a disaster under Steve McLaren. I was there when things were briefly looked up under Fabio Capello, but then for the absolutely dire World Cup in in South Africa, and the game against Algeria was one of the sort of worst football matches I think I've ever seen. And you know, I, I actually had quite good fun recently um, revisiting England's World Cup campaign ten years ten years on for, for a piece on the Athletic. And then there was this sort of strange period under. Roy Hodgson where it felt like expectations were so incredibly low and you know they went to the World Cup in Brazil and got knocked out within I think eight days of the start of the tournament or you know I think they were the first team to be knocked out if I got that right um and it was just an absolute non-event from an England point of view um so that you know that that was really my period covering England and, and then by the time um things started looking up at the, oh, obviously the Euros in 2016 at Iceland. So yeah, I, I, you know, you could say I was, um, I've, um, I was a bad luck charm for, for, for the England team, but, um, so I, I wasn't there in the, I mean, I, I did the matches in, um, in um, the 2018 World Cup, but I wasn't there um, as a sort of um, malign uh, or um, bad luck presence in in the england camp in in um what was it called rapino in in russia so i i felt like i i had all the worst bits um covering england um but it was um yeah i I, england's a funny one there are some journalists who will say that you know the, the least important england match is more important than the most important club match i think that's I think I've never really shared that. I I think I've always been more excited by club football than 99% of international football, the very best international football, you know, often the knockout stages of a World Cup or whatever, or, or, you know, those real grudge matches between, you know, the South American nations or, or some of the Eastern European nations, you know, those are incredibly exciting. But a lot of the international football I've reported on has been really dull. And it's sometimes you can end up trying a bit too hard to <coughs> pretend otherwise. Um it's uh yeah, I, I think international football can be can be quite dull and, and um uh certainly that was the case for a lot of the um England matches that I was reporting on.
0: And you revisited the 2010 World Cup, but at the time, did you have that? Uh, Rooney talking to the camera footage. Were you able to see that as it happened? So did that like have any influence on what you were writing?
1: Well it was it was right on the deadline anyway because it was, you know, it was an evening kickoff and you know newspaper deadlines that, you know, we had to get I had to get my match report in on the whistle. And I think I mean I certainly didn't witness it from the press box, which was, you know, right at the very, very, very back at the at the Greenpoint Stadium. Um, I wonder whether, because it was early Twitter, maybe I, early Twitter, at least as far as my conscious, consciousness is concerned, I wonder whether maybe I was aware of it for that reason, you know, maybe people were tweeting about it, sort of within seconds of the final whistle and then maybe I, you know, maybe it would have been flagged up or picked up by the the desk back in London and maybe something inserted, but no, it it certainly wasn't anything that I could see from the back of the stand. Um, but it was, um. Yeah, I, mean that, I think th- those match reports were just sort of a case of sort of venting your spleen about how bad it was. And I, I think sometimes people can go over the top about how bad a performance is and particularly with England, or particularly at tournaments. And I think sometimes we can underestimate how hard it is to generate that intensity on a neutral ground in a sort of strange atmosphere against a, you know, mid-ranking team, um, which Algeria were, and you'd probably say England were as well. But it was, um, yeah, I, I think that was one occasion where I think a lot of the criticisms were, you know, of, of the performance, not necessarily of individual criticism, but I think I think a lot of the criticism was fair.
0: And to bring us into sort of the the modern times, the, the athletic era of your uh, journalism lifetime, Um, what's the difference between what you're doing there and what you were doing before in terms of, you know, is it sort of more creative, more freedom to sort of look at what you're doing and paint bigger pictures that way?
1: Yeah, I I would say, I would say that, I mean, the fact that, I mean, as a newspaper, it's, it's, I'm absolutely not criticizing newspapers at all. I I loved working for a newspaper um, and, you know, newspapers are fantastic. Um, what, when you're writing for a newspaper, you basically almost think one day at one day at a time, and you think you go into each day thinking, right, what am I doing for the next day's paper? What am I doing? What am I doing? You know, and you're sort of making calls or you're writing something for the next day's paper. Generally speaking, I mean, it's um, you know you can try and set up interviews, you can try and sort of think a couple of weeks ahead sometimes, but. Generally, you don't sort of have time to to breathe. You don't have time off. You don't often have time to sort make calls and, and go deeper on a on, on a story. If it's a, if it's a sort of deeper look at something, you know, quite often it's like one or two calls, and then you know you're on your deadline. You have to you have to write it. And with the athletic, you know, even even when we're at matches, I think the emphasis is on look actually watch the game. Don't you know? We, we're not having you. Writing during the game and not being able to see the game because you know you need to be able to um, tell people things, tell people the readers things that they don't know. And often when you're writing for a newspaper up against the deadline on a you know big Champions League night, etc., you know you've watched less of the game than the people that you're writing for. So there's there's um, there's a difficulty there, and I, I think one approach the Athletic has had is look, don't write for. On the whistle, let's let's write for um, you know let's let's go deep. Let's have a let's work out what the story is as the game develops. Let's then sort of analyse the stats, get get people's opinions on it, you know, get insight from the player involved or the managers, and and then go from it from there. So even the match reporting is very much more reflective, I would say. I mean, detailed yet reflective, um, and I think that's probably the best of both worlds because if you really, if you're trying to give people what they want from a match, I don't think it's necessarily, I think, you know, if it wasn't the way we'd always done it, I don't think the best way to report on a match is by just sort of watching it and kind of typing as you go and and just sort of, you know, blow by blow match reporting. I, I don't, you know, I think that was great in the days of, you know, Saturday evening football echo, etc., or, or sort of Saturday evening pink, you know, Manchester News pink, etc. That was, that was, that's what has worked forever in, in the ways of newspapers. And it's, and it's very much geared towards sort of short turnaround, you know, give them what they want immediately. I think to do something different, you know, if you're offering something different, then you have to approach it from a different point of view. So, So, for example, the athletic, you know, James Pierce one game, at, I think Liverpool played Spurs away last season, and James Pierce did um, basically 90 minutes watching Virgil van Dijk, and it was just a, you know, really, really, really interesting piece, but, you know, we've done so many pieces, like, you know, same with Jack Grealish, and quite often we'll go into a game with a set idea of, like you know, let's do this piece, but the flexibility of it also allows you to react to events and react to different stories. So if something then emerges as the story and maybe it's the kind of thing that the newspapers would naturally sort of think about the next day, you know, that we're able to sort of take a few hours and, and deliver that for you know, maybe um, at the same point as as people are reading the blow by blow match report in, in the next morning's newspaper. I, th- I think, you know, the idea is that we can Reflect more and go into more detail, and less restricted in terms of time and space, and just less respect, less restricted in terms of what people expect from the athletic. I think people will get upset if they pick up a newspaper and under the score, under the score line, you know, it's got something reflective rather than. Um, the blow by blow i think a lot of people like the blow by blow but for us to as a subscription site i think we have to offer something different i think we are very good at doing that
0: and we've mentioned a few of the things you've done but what are some of the pieces on there that you're most proud of that you've written or even like proud of on behalf of a colleague or something they've written
1: um well there are a lot in in probably in both categories but i mean if if I mean if I talk about things that colleagues have, have done um one of the best pieces I I, I always come back to is, is a piece that Adam Crafton did um on the death of Emiliano Sala um you know he signed for Cardiff um in the January transfer window a couple of years ago and obviously there was the you know, the tragedy where the plane went missing on the on the journey from, um, from, from from France, and he went to Argentina and met Salah's family, and did this most amazing piece on that. Um, Jordan Campbell, our, our Rangers correspondent, did a absolutely. I mean, he's done a, a number of amazing pieces, but he, he he did a piece on Fernando Rixon after Fernando Rixon, uh, the former Rangers player, died of motor neurone disease. He did the most wonderful piece with with Rexon's family and going to going to um, I think Sitard or, or yeah or whichever Dutch town or city it was from. It was just a wonderfully powerful emotional piece of writing, and it was you know thousands of words long. The kind of thing you can't again you can't really do in a in a newspaper. And it's I mean I I guess. My equivalent of that would be a much more upbeat story, which was the one where I went to Senegal to um, sort of visit um, Sadio Mane's home village. Um, So it was it was the Liverpool Man City game last season, I think November 2019. Uh, And it was a game where I was thinking, God, you know, I hope we can get enough passes for me to go to that game Uh, because it was already sort of shaping into the biggest game of the season so far. And um, Alex Kajelski, our sports editor head of sport, came onto me about four weeks beforehand and said, you know that Liverpool Man City um, match in a few weeks, do you know what you should do? And I was thinking, right, this sounds like you're not going to want me to go to the game. And he said, right, well, so I, think it was, I was thinking this would this better be good. Um, and he said, what, what I'd love you to do is um, to go to Senegal. I was thinking, right. Go to Sadio Mano's village and watch it with his family. I said, like, "Right, well, that does sound like it would be fun." Um, anyway, I, I sort of basically booked my flights and and um, on the way there, actually, because it's just over the border from Guinea-Bissau, I also sort of went and tracked down um, Ansufati's family um, as a as a bonus piece from that trip. Um, so so that was sort of two pe- two, two pieces for the, um, for the price of one. But it was, um, yeah, I, so I didn't announce, I mean, I, I, I tried initially to see if I could get in touch with Sadio family and I, I couldn't. Um, so I basically turned up there on the Saturday, you know, 24 hours before the game and and sort of arrived in this village and it was, you know, I haven't been to Africa before. I mean, there's, there's always, you know, people have different ideas of what they expect from from Africa and different parts of Africa and this is obviously in Senegal in West Africa and and there are parts of Senegal which you know people people say that Dakar is similar to Paris in some ways and I think what well, you know there are probably many ways in which it isn't but where Sadio Mane is from in Bambali which is about a seven hour drive from Dakar um it's very much a village, uh, sort of, you know, with mud huts and, you know, corrugated iron shelters and um, things like that. And it was, you know, people, you know, kids running, sort of playing around the well and chasing goats. It was very much that sort of, um, that sort of part of Africa, that kind of community, which just felt like it was miles away from anywhere. And I pulled up in this village and then there were kids working walk, running around in Liverpool Mane number 10 shirts. Um I thought, oh, I've come to the right place then. Um I asked in sort of my absolutely lapsed French, you know, how, you know, does anybody know where Sally Mane's house is? And they sort of directed me up the up the road. And um I I kind of, you know, there was this one huge house um where basically sort of about 42 I think it's 42 members of his family live, you know, brothers, sisters, aunties, uncles, um, you know, nephews, nieces, cousins, grandparents. It's, it's, um, so I watched this, you know, I watched the game with them, and and it was just the most joyful experience. And you know, obviously, things did fall into place, and that Mane scored the decisive third goal. And I've, I've shared the video for, on my Twitter feed of, of the, you know, the one of the kids sort of. Backflips in celebration—not not proper backflips, but not, but kind of almost like kind of body popping back backflips—and it was just you know getting the insight from his family about his career and his life, and and then them showing me the work he has done in Bambali um, in terms of um, financing the construction of a hospital and a school and a school and, and this kind of thing and, and a mosque—and it was the most uplifting sort of story and insight Um, imaginable it was it was lovely I mean I I feel like a a lot of the time I've written about you know very sad stories I wrote a story about um, Paul Vaston who played for Arsenal um, 40 years ago and, and died of you know drug abuse and things like that, and I've written stories with players who've had mental health problems, sort of those sort of deep stories, which I'm quite drawn to, and I find fascinating to tell, but that, that one about, um, you know, the Sadio Mane story was, was one I really, really, really enjoyed um, doing. And, and it's the kind of story which I would say you couldn't really do. I mean, Alex said to me, because we worked together at times, Alex said to me, I could never do that at times because to send you there and the money, less the money it would cost, but more, you know, basically you couldn't tell that story within a sort of spread on, a, on a, you know, on, on a, to, to show you, you know, I'm, my loyalty to the times is genuine, look, the, time, the times that, you know, that's, you, you couldn't tell that, that story in sort of the space of, you know, of that, you know, that's probably 1,500 words. This piece was probably about, I don't know, five and a half thousand words. And I know amongst journalists, the um, huge athletic word counts are a bit of a sort of, um, you know, a bit, a bit of a joke. But, um, you know, we are telling stories in a depth, I would say, that you can't really do in, in newspapers. And, and that, that was a, a good example of something that I don't think I could have done properly for The Times without missing out huge swathes of it.
0: So... Needless to say, the, the two are completely different kind of um, realities for a writer. You're doing sort of things that wouldn't be possible either way because yeah, yeah, whilst, yeah. You're, whilst you're doing on the, like, blow-by-blow, blow, as you described it, things for the times, you're also getting the opportunity to do these um, sort of liberating pieces where you get to write about things that are interesting in depth and you can sort of show people the the behind the scenes of, a story um you wrote a book called forever young um about adrian oh that might be the wrong name
1: you 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 don't um, yeah
0: the, the, ideally without the it's it's
1: uh, don't, don't. Oh, yeah.
0: and and so that was um last year or year before um and that was another one of those stories you're telling that you're talking about being drawn to um can you tell our listeners more about the book and about the story
1: uh yep absolutely um that was a story so adrian dotty was um uh a player who was at manchester united in the i mean he arrived there for an apprenticeship in 1989 he was the year above ryan Giggs. so people have wrongly said he was a member of the class at 92 he wasn't he was slightly a you know, Before that age group, he was he was um, six months older than Ryan Giggs, and they played on opposite wings in the um, in the youth team. And the reason this I, I sort of stumbled across this story was um, I was doing a piece on Ryan Giggs. is was coming up to the twentieth anniversary of his debut, so tw- early twenty eleven, um, and I had this idea that for the times I was going to try and track down people who who would played alongside Giggs in the youth team and it was going to be about it was going you know going to be about his debut sort of revisited 20 years on and so i was speaking to some of his um, teammates in the youth team and um like mark bosnich and alan tong and people like that and i said to them you know so was was Giggs, um you know ryan wilson as he was in those days was he just like head and shoulders above everybody else at the age of 15 16 and i think it was alan tong said to me well, do you, know, do you remember a guy called Adrian Doherty? And I said, well, I, I know the name, but I, I, I don't really, no, I, mean, I, I couldn't tell you anything about him. And he said, well, look, this lad was amazing. He was as good as Gigsy. He was, um, he was uh, you know, got, got injured at, just before he was gonna make his first team debut. Um, and then, you know, he had to retire at a young age then the next thing we knew he, he he died he died in a canal in Holland and I'm just absolutely dumbstruck on hearing this um so I googled him and there was almost nothing on the entire internet at the time apart from a tribute posted by one of his coaches who was a guy called Matt Bradley um in Derry in in Northern Ireland and he um he had written this um, sort of tribute in which he had um, two newspaper clippings. One was um, from Manchester Evening News on on the eve of what should have been Adrian's debut, for, first team debut as a sixteen um, year old against Southampton in yeah, early nineteen ninety, and it said, "You know, boy, boy wonder, standing by and you know saying that he was um, causing you know the most excitement." behind the scenes of any youngster since George Best and then obviously he didn't make his debut that day and then 10 years later there was a clip from the Derry Journal saying you know tributes you know tributes poured in for um, I think it was Tragic tragic Soccer Jam or United Soccer Jam or something like that and it was detailing that he, that he died in, um, um, in Holland um, and I just thought you know what on earth you know what what is this story what that, that just isn't on the internet basically what, what what's happened between those two dates so I basically sort of set off on this what became a, a real labor of love and tracking down his family and and writing the story of of this guy who yeah basically had the world at his feet at 16 and was and then died the day before his 27th birthday and in a canal in Holland and um I thought that even those basic details captivated me in a way that I think sort of very few stories would grab me but the fact that when I met his family they they just told me about the type of guy he was and they said oh you know Adrian oh, we, we could never really place him as a footballer because you know he used to wear all these second-hand clothes and he'd go you know he'd he'd stand outside Old Trafford giving his tickets away and and go busking in the in the in the city centre instead on a Saturday afternoon and you know they had all these you know came down with this folder of all these typewritten um poems that he'd written and songs that he'd written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them which are you know many of them are featured in the book and I just thought to myself god this is this is an incredible story, and um, and I wanted to write a piece of the Times straight away. Um, and it is one of those examples of a piece which I I don't think you can could really I don't think you could tell that story in 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 sort of fifteen hundred words in, in a newspaper. The family didn't want a newspaper article they, they so once they eventually I mean, they didn't want any publicity at all. But once they eventually decided that they did they thought, well, what we would really like is, is a book um, that would be a sort of lasting memorial or tribute. So I sort of set off on that journey doing a book and, and um, it was, yeah, I mean, I, I always knew I wanted to write a book at some point and um, I think it would it had to be a story that would really captivate me and that story totally captivated me to the point where I just became really obsessed with it and um, I think I spoke to uh, I think I did about 100 interviews or over 100 interviews for the book for different people most of them sort of an hour or two long so you can imagine how much um how long that 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 took me I'm a a slow methodical worker at the best of times but that was um yeah I think it took me about five years to be writing that in my spare time and it's um that's something I'm yeah I wouldn't say this very often but it's something i'm very proud of not necessarily because of the book but because i know how much that book meant to his friends and family and and the fact that his story is now known and recognized and and that his you know i think people have been able to join up a few of the dots of his story rather than just sort of seeing the basic facts and, and jumping to their own conclusions
0: it's something i've learned not just by reading the stuff we've published but just by chatting to you today and um it's quite an interesting thing sports journalism is sort of painted as this you know the blow by blows and stuff and you know writing about games and gossip columns and stuff like that but there is real sort of place there for things like that story and stories about mental health and things like that and talking to footballers about them as people not just as Sort of these entertainment stars, and it's something that maybe people sort of don't realise about sports journalism is there is this real side to it that people like yourself are covering. Um, something I like to ask people like yourself and the other guests is for lessons you've got for people like me who want to try and you know follow your footsteps into the profession. But I suppose that's that's one of one of them I w- I've taken away. And I don't mind sort of if it's one of the ones you would say again, but being sort of unorthodox and doing sports journalism, but talking about real things is, Mm. you know, is entirely possible.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think the most interesting thing about football or or sport is the, the human side. I mean, I mean, you know, people watch the Olympics and they'll watch, you know, uh, you know, somebody getting in a in a boat, and I'll get very excited about about watching someone rowing and, and so on. But what really this, what really appeals to people about those stories is, is knowing that it's like you know the sacrifices that they've made and the human stories behind them. And I think all of those Olympians have you know great stories behind them and and sort of great personal sacrifice. Sometimes with football, I'd say football these days. When you've got, basically, people who have been in academies from the age of, you know, seven, eight, or, you know, whatever, or, um, and have just been sort of very media trained and have kind of come up through a very standardised route, you know, sometimes those sometimes those stories aren't so interesting. I mean, but every player I would say, well, I'd say most players have an interesting story to tell, and I think those um human stories and you know what, what they've been through and where they've come from um, you know particularly a lot of the, you know the, the overseas players you know people who've come from Africa like Sadio Mane or, or whoever it's it's or or from you know real poverty or from sort of really difficult upbringings whether in this country or in, in any other country I think those things are often much you know maybe you know, a lot of the time, maybe those are the stories that we can tell people that that you know bring a different um, perspective, rather than um, you know, rather than necessarily what's happening on the pitch. Sometimes, sometimes it's it's what 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 um, you know. Sometimes telling a player's story, it's not even it doesn't even have to be in their words. I mean, you know, quite often we've done stories about different players or, or whatever. You know, Danny Taylor wrote, did a brilliant recent piece on on Marcus Rashford I mean, everybody's been talking about Marcus Rashford for for months with all the brilliant work he's been doing and but Danny Taylor wrote this piece you know going back to Withenshaw and speaking to you know people who knew him growing up and who who you know still know him now and and that that was a level of insight and telling his human story in a much more human way that I, I think we can I think that's the kind of thing we can do and, it, and I think that's you know, I think you're saying about you know what what can people do. I mean, tell people story, You know, tell people stories that they don't know or that they haven't heard before, or tell the stories that maybe are known, but tell them better. You know, tell them you know in more depth than than, than they've told uh, been been told before. And I think you know that's that's what you get from speaking. You know, targeting people and speaking to people, taking time to. Um, find the right people to speak to and um, yeah there's a, there's a story which I'm sort of just in the very very early stages of setting out on um, at the moment which is a sort of very quite a daunting story in so, some ways about you know a footballer that you know not, not many people know about and and um, that if I could tell that story in a way I would like to be able to tell that story I think it will be um, you know I think that will be One that sort of fits into that category of of a story that people didn't know and and that they find very sort of you know arresting and engaging from a human point of view
0: yeah it's um it's quite interesting um that you're talking about this stuff and you're talking about the sort of the human side and doing stories better because i think that there's probably stories that were done 10 years ago that if we revisited now, we could tell again with new information and, you Mm. know, new sides of the story that would move the conversation along. There's probably players Mm. who, you know, when I was 10, 15 years old, were just footballers and now are sort of, like, doing things that are, you know, different, like Matteo Flamini, who's suddenly become this Mm. sort of businessman, really rich guy from doing, you know, something different. He's not just gone into coaching, but... Yeah, um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about the sort of the finale um, is Daisy Cuttergate, uh, the the football <laughs> cliches podcast. The so having had uh, Mr. Hurry on, I feel like a sort of um, a, an impartial person here to say that I, I feel you were robbed in that. I, th- I feel there was sort of. You know, you you started the the word first. Um, as a, as an impartial listener, I, I felt I heard that. But you know, have have the wounds healed a little bit?
1: No, no, that's that's all I want to say on the matter. No, it was um, it, we are talking, of course, about the um, the uh, quiz on the football cliches podcast just before Christmas. Um, I'd um, I became the inaugural um champion of the athletic football cliches. Quiz in June, when I absolutely annihilated my lovely colleague, George Colkin who had a complete meltdown um, over whether, um, what was it, over whether a credit card was something tangible, that's right. Um, you'd probably have to listen to that to understand that reference. Um, and then, so we had a follow-up quiz in, in December, um, just before Christmas, um, I was against Jack Pitbrook. I was. I mean, it was it was it was a it was a absolute demolition job. It was it was Brazil one, Germany seven type type category. Uh, and then and then Adam um, Adam I think sort of shifted it, you know, moved the goalposts late on so that we had a dramatic finale and and um, gave Jack a hundred points or something like that for to, to to draw the score the scores level or. Or, or, or to get him one behind or whatever. Um, and then it came down to, what was it? It was, it, yeah, it was the question, which, which was it American Civil War? It was, it yeah, was, it, it, Vietnam, it, yeah. it, it, the answer was basically the daisy cutter, as in what word for a low shot was from, um, uh, it was, it's, it's got some American military um, thing. I, I feel, I and, I, and I'm, I'm absolutely not going to insist on this, but I, I I felt that I was I got there first. Jack felt that he got there first. Um, uh, Adam had the final call and, and he said um, that, that Jack got there first. And I was thinking, well, just, you know, I, it takes a lot to get me rattled. I'm very easy going. But um, it was, uh, I, I had a, not quite on the Calkin scale, but I, I had a, I had a, mm, Minor, minor um, loss of uh, loss of dignity. Minor loss of dignity, um, and um, yeah, it was it was when Adam was saying things like, you know, that your reign is over. And I, I was I was heartbroken because uh, you know, I, I um, my my status as quiz champion was something I, I took and still take very seriously. Um, And, um, yeah, the idea that it would be taken away from me in such cruel circumstances, I don't know, but I I said to, because we were filming it at a time, and I said, well, look, you can go back, you you can, you can sort of actually do a sort of VAR thing because you will be able to see on the video. And then the the, the, um, the video footage had mysteriously gone missing. I'd, I'd actually recorded the audio from my end on on the producer's request, just to improve the quality of the audio. On my audio, it, it was very clear that, that I spoke first. There could have been a time lag, but um, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, no, I I felt like I was. Yeah, um, I, I I don't want to word, use slanderous words like cheated, but I was cheated. Um, in that, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it felt like it felt like. Um, it felt like Jack Jack had been promised the victory. That, 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 that's all I can say. I, I think if it was. I think if it was, if I was a Premier League manager, I'd be. Um, I'd probably get a touchline touchline ban or, or whatever, or a massive fine, or warned about my future conduct. But um, no, I, I felt like I was cheated there.
0: There, there was a, a more serious point to that. For from the behind of asking about it. it, was just about the sort of relationship you have with your colleagues there because there's so many of it you. Was
1: very good until that point. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, I was going to say, yeah, there has to be some sort of, you know, collective sort of spirit to work in such a, a big environment like the athletic, and then, you know, to, to sort of pally up and go on to those kind of podcasts and things like that, and to help mm-hmm. with the writing of stuff. But, yeah, I can imagine that it's one of those, those deal breakers. There's no repairing that relationship once you've been cheated that way. Oh,
1: yeah. uh, Adam, hurry, Jack, Pittbrook, they're finished with me. Um, no, it was. Um, it was uh, no on, on on the point about um, about um, you know relations with colleagues and and um, and that kind of thing. You know, it's basically so at the times. You know, we, we you know, one person joined at a time, and you know that's, that's the stuff that evolves, and that's you know generally how it works with newspapers and with with any organisation. With the Athletic, it, we, you know, and, and we, all, we all got on brilliantly at the, at the times. It was it was very good in that respect. Um, and I speak, you know, still speak to a lot of the people, you know, my ex-colleagues there now. And but it was um but the athletic, you know, it was this team that was sort of thrown together in in a in a summer, it was, you know, basically like a kind of um, you know, the ultimate sort of you know like like um you know Man City getting rich and and buying a load of players in a short space of time and, and and hoping that hoping that some kind of team spirit um comes from that, um, but it, but with with the athletic, we've we've only really sort of got together on two occasions because you know we, once just before launch and once with our Christmas due, because the, you know the pandemic basically has stopped anybody seeing, seeing each other um, for, for for months and yet we we've somehow got you know with this vast staff of I don't know fifty odd football reporters um it feels like it's an incredibly collaborative atmosphere atmosphere and everybody works together and you know i was working on a piece this morning and you know just ask put put on the whatsapp group can everyone sort of mention a few examples of this and you know everybody helping each other out with phone numbers and ideas and you know the, the, the report you know the aston villa reporter will come up with an idea for the Everton reporter or or, or whatever, or, you know, everybody helps everybody. And it's, and it's, I think because it's, you know, because we've all sort of taken this big leap of faith in the athletic and that they've taken a big leap of faith in, you know, us as well. I think it's so important to everybody that, that everybody um, that, you know, that that it works and that it's successful and everybody shares each other's work on social media and everybody, you know, supports each other behind the scenes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very nice, um, environment to work in. I, you know, I think often at newspapers it can be quite cutthroat between colleagues, and, and I've, I've rarely encountered that at the, at the Times. But it, but you know, you, you can get situations where you know colleagues feel like they're in competition with each other. I think you know Danny Taylor and I were in competition at, when he was at the Guardian and I was at the Times. But you know, we're not we're not in competition now. We, you know, we we work together on a big. Liverpool Man United piece last week and, you know, it's it's, it's, um, it's it's a very good it's a very good way of working and I, I think um, yeah, I think I think when um, when we do all get together for, for a few drinks after the um, after, you know, when all of this is over, to quote the most used phrase of the last 10 months, you know it'll be, it'll be great to see everybody
0: Yeah, um, where can people find you on social media and stuff like that where, where can I send people that way
1: um, Twitter is at Oliver K. Um, I'm also on Facebook, although well, I'm never quite sure of the value of that these days. Uh, which is, yeah, as in as in a, a sort of journalist page on Facebook. Um, um, Instagram, Oliver K. One, I think. Yeah, MySpace and Bieber. No, not, not MySpace. The um, Parlay, no, uh, uh, and but may, mainly, of course, on on the athletic. And um, I'm I'm sure if people um, subscribe to the athletic, um, they they will um, read a lot of me, and more importantly, my um, colleagues who who know an incredible amount about the clubs that they cover and and go into incredible depth with the stories they write about the clubs clubs that they cover. I always say that they are they are the people to subscribe. For athletic four and and then you've got the likes of George and Danny and Dom and Adam and Cy and, and me just sort of um you know just just doing the um just doing sprinkling bits of extra everywhere. But it's uh, yeah, it's it's um it's it, it's a very good product. If you are into football journalism and f- good football writing and I don't think you'd be um you'd probably have listened to this podcast if you weren't into football journalism. I, I think it's I think it's the I think it's the place to be.
0: Mr. Raleigh care thank you very much.
1: It's a real pleasure. Thank you.